Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, friends. How are everyone's spirits today? One Great. to ten, Aaron? Uh, uh, six. Yeah, man, you're on the upswing, dude. <laughs> Those are good. Everything's looking up right now. <laughs> all, all indicators aim upwards. Uh, the indicators for this week also upwards. Uh, I guess this week, Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl Strayed is the person you want to hear from right repeat, now. Repeat caller. Yeah, a couple years ago, uh, 2015, I believe, I was in Portland and I went and spent an afternoon at Cheryl's house in Portland and we ran one of the longest episodes we've ever run. It was like close to two hours and uh, it's one of my uh, one of my all-time favorite episodes of the Longform Podcast and uh, she has a new podcast out, sort of quarantine pandemic podcast called Sugar Calling and instead of uh, being the one dishing out advice, Cheryl Strait, obviously uh, famous for the Dear Sugar columns and also wrote Wild and is a sort of um, a person who gives advice in America. Uh, but in this moment, she's decided not to give advice. She is seeking wisdom. And so she has this new podcast, Sugar Calling, where she's calling writers, all of whom are over 60, and basically talking to them about what this is like. So it's like George Saunders and Margaret Atwood and Judy Bloom and all kinds of uh, wonderful people, and I've been enjoying the podcast, but it was driving me a little crazy that I didn't really know how it was going for Cheryl. And so the premise of this episode is that I was uh, I was calling to see how she's doing. Can I just throw in here that uh, there's too many like 30 under 30, 25 under 25 lists, but like over 60 is a criteria that I can get behind. Like there should be like a 60 over 60 list. That's basically what she's doing. Uh, yeah, Max, that was such a good pitch for the show. It was like it was it was almost like we got into the like uh, the ad block there. It was, it was smooth. <laughs> I saw I saw an action the way that you could sell me on a podcast. <laughs> well, I uh, I have nothing to do with this one. I just think it's real good. So a lot of people are doing things like starting podcasts, starting projects, uh, doing the things during the pandemic that they cannot do during their normal lives. Each one of those things needs its own email newsletter. It's simply the way of the future. Uh, you can get one from MailChimp. They make it easy to get going and are with you as you grow. Thank you to MailChimp. They make this show possible. And now here's Max with Cheryl Strayed. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Max. How are you? Uh, you know, I, I'm okay. You know, I'll, uh, grand scheme of things, I'm okay. Okay, you're in New York City, right? T- tell me where you are and how. Sorry, I'm taking over. I'm going to interview you. Where are you and who are you with and what are you doing? I will answer this question, but this question only, and then I am interviewing you. You're not, you're not <laughs> okay, going to get okay. away with that. Okay. I am in Brooklyn. I am home. I have a five year old and a one year old, and it's an interesting time to have a five year old and a one year old. But also, we've got some outdoor space, and everyone's healthy, and we're okay. You know, we're okay. Good. How are you? That's what the real reason I'm calling here. How how are you doing? (laughs) 
I'm okay. I, like you, I'm socially isolating on the other coast in Portland, Oregon, with my husband, Brian, and our two teenagers, Carver, who just turned 16 last week and had his 16th birthday in this new socially distanced way, which wasn't like maybe ideal. And my daughter, Bobby, who's 14. So um, that we're, we're, it's, I have to say it's a lot. And there are some lovely moments. I think the lovelier moments were more at the beginning when we were like, oh, okay, everyone's here and we're going to like bake cookies and, and do puzzles and stuff. And then now it's like, okay, this has been a long time and it's, it's exhausting, especially things like trying to get the kids motivated to do school-like things when they're, you know, it's just, it's very difficult just to be having them doing online education for schools that aren't really set up for that. I don't know how your kids are wired, but 16 and 14, that, those all seem like tough ages to be stuck at home with your parents. They are. It's really counter to how things should be or how they want them to be. It's really the time in their lives that actually they're supposed to be dis- socially distancing from us and going out with their friends. And I mean, thank goodness for their phones. They're always FaceTiming and Snapchatting and whatever they do, you know, all those things. And yeah, so they're connected to their friends, but it's, it's tough. I feel like this amount of time too, we're, we're like entering week seven or something. I'm not sure when Portland got the shelter in place order, but there's something about that amount of time, especially because there's nothing on the horizon to look forward to exactly. Like no one knows when it's going to end that I feel like, I, I don't know. I think people are starting to crack a little bit. Yeah, that's for sure the hardest part for me. I mean, two layers of that. One is uncertainty. You know, I know like in the grand scheme of things that life is always uncertain. And so in some kind of interesting and profound way, this experience has reminded us of that truth, right? That we think we know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we don't really. And yet, you know, the thing about that is usually what we think is going to happen tomorrow does happen, you know? So we have kind of relied on that, on that ability to make plans. And I just, I love to make plans. I am a huge, huge, huge planner. And and it's been really uh, distressing for me to not know what I'm going to be doing in June or July or August and having to delete all those things from my calendar that I thought I was going to do. So there's that piece of it. And then there is this, I keep trying to think my way out of this, like, well, let's see, maybe they can find a vaccine or there can be a treatment. Then we can do this, that, and the other thing. But every way I think it through, I can't imagine that that our lives are going to change much really very soon, maybe even not in this year. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Is it going to happen? I mean, I, I mean, I guess it doesn't even matter what you think because it's like we're all just <laughs> theorizing, right? Like until there's something that's like, yeah, you can move safely around now in crowds, like, we can't. Well, I'm calling because I'm hoping that you can make me um, feel better about all of it. Okay. <laughs> I'm hoping you can just you can just walk me through this and, and that you have lots of advice. But uh, before we get there, I want to talk about this podcast that you're doing. Can we talk about that for a sec? Yes. It's called Sugar Calling. Yeah. And it's you calling other people for advice. And I was very interested in that being your move in this time. And I was wondering if you could just kind of walk me through how that came to be and, and why that was, that was what you wanted to be doing rather than dishing it out yourself. Right. Yeah. So when this pandemic really hit the U S and, and so many of us started having to socially distance and stay at home and, you know, so on and so forth, I got, I started to see all these comments on my social media feeds, people saying, Cheryl, we need you to bring sugar back. And Lisa Tobin at the New York Times got in touch with me and said, what about bringing sugar back? You know, a a sort of sugar quarantine edition. And I immediately felt like what we needed right now was not really an advice show or like me, you know, as sugar giving advice. And, And here's the reason. One of the things I learned in my years of advice giving in my column and then on a podcast I did with Steve Almond is that when you're thinking about giving advice, I think you don't just think through the problems that people have or the letters that people are going to probably write to you about what they're struggling with, but rather the advice you're going to give in response to them. 
and I what I thought about is, yes, there are going to be 10 or 12 or 20 different kinds of problems that people might write to me about that are specific to this moment in this pandemic. But pretty much across the board, my answer will be the same. And it would essentially boil down to things like, I don't know, and it's going to be okay, even though this is hard. And we have to embrace uncertainty, and we have to accept the new normal and learn how to be comfortable in this uncomfortable moment. And so I just started to think, feel like the advice was already going to be fairly narrow and limited. And it just didn't seem very interesting to me. But what I felt like we needed in this moment was something deeper than advice. And that's insight and wisdom. And of course, you know, there's also insight and wisdom in advice, don't get me wrong, but that I wasn't so much thinking that we need the solution to one particular problem but rather to engage with people who thought deeply about the human condition and ask them what they thought about these times and what they were experiencing now. And I thought, what better category of people to do that than writers? That's, you know, that's our job to contemplate the human condition. And in particular, writers over the age of 60, I wanted to reach out to people who have been around a while. And also, I kept hearing, you know, that phrase that people over the age of 60 were the greatest risk of the virus. And I was just thinking about them and some of the ageism, some of the the stuff I was hearing where people were saying, well, you know, it's okay if an old person dies. And so I just thought I wanted to hear those voices right now. So I pitched that idea instead. Instead of me giving advice, me seeking wisdom from writers over 60. I've wanted to do this thing for years, which I, I don't think I've ever mentioned publicly, although I've taken so long to do it that like, who knows if I ever will, which is I, I've wanted to host a new podcast where I only interview people over 65 for many reasons, including that just that like, they've got a lot to say and people don't ask very often. Yeah, we're just a, such an incredibly ageist culture. It, it was interesting when I first came up with the idea well, and first of all, you know, I, I first thought kind of like 65 too, but then I wanted George Saunders on my, my mentor <laughs> and he's 61. So I was like, we got to lower it to, so it's really writers over the age of 61, right? But when I first thought of the idea and I had to write like the description of the podcast, I found that there were limits to the language. Like it, there's something that that's built in to our language that we associate an old person with like an insult, which I yeah. found uh, it's just so awful, but it's true. Like, I love that term, our elders, because that connotes some respect to me. But I think that we don't really carry that idea very well in American culture. We, we really denigrate our elders. Help me understand just one second longer. Like, what about this moment? Like, you, you are one of our, like, national advice givers, you know? Right, yeah. You're like, uh, you're on the, like, advice Rushmore, you know? Um <laughs> What about this moment, aside from the fact that maybe the advice, you know, would be narrow, like, that doesn't mean that people weren't looking, wouldn't be looking to you. Yeah. So just tell me, understand how this becomes the moment where you look to other people. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm being like too self-deprecating when I say it'll be narrow. I mean, obviously, I can still give advice and I would make a good go of it and and maybe people would find it useful but well I'm going to I'm going to make you do it on this episode so I know exactly <laughs> yeah good that's fine but what I want to say too is like one thing that has always been true of me being dear sugar is that it's always been an experiment an artistic experiment it's always been that I do it because it's interesting to me like if we go back to sugar's origins uh, when I took over the column, and I'm just given this column, paid nothing for it. I just completely make it my own because I can, because, you know, nobody's paying me, I can do what I want to do. And I really just go at it. And I just go full throttle. And it really was, in so many ways, so interesting to me as a writer, as an artist. And then the podcast, it was like, wow, what's a podcast? Okay, I'll do a <laughs> podcast. This is interesting. This is fun. And then after a while, I was like, okay, I've learned what I learned from doing this kind of thing on the Dear Sugars podcast. And so when I was asked to do it again, it was like, well, you know, I don't want to do the same thing. I want to do something that's more interesting. So in some ways, like, yes, it's true that I'm like, yeah, I kind of feel like what we need is wisdom and insight. Like it just seemed like, again, not so much 
you know, how do you live with your ex? You know, how do you break up during a quarantine or, you know, things like that, which are valid, valid questions, but like something that really is about a kind of deeper insight that sits beneath all of our struggles and questions, you know? So, Mm -hmm. so it was, I was interested in that. That sparked my sense of exploration. So I, I tend to trust my instincts when it comes to knowing what is most interesting to me and hardly ever is that going to be doing the same thing over and over and over again in a way that, you know, might be of great service to others, but that's not truly engaging all of me. Aside from the podcast, have you been feeling creative in this moment? Well, you know, I have to. <laughs> I have to. I'm a writer and I have I have to deliver. I'm writing a screenplay right now. I don't think I should say like what it is or who it's about. I can tell you it's a screenplay about somebody. And um, it's about another woman who's a trailblazer. And um, I'm writing a screenplay. And it's due. And I I love that aspect of writing sometimes, you know, I'm just as floaty as anyone and like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll write and I'll ponder things and I'll see what comes and all that stuff. But I also have a job. And sometimes it's really cool to have a deadline. And no, to answer your question, I do not feel like right now is the most, <laughs> the best time to be writing. I'm so distracted. I'm cooking more than I've ever cooked in my life or ever even wanted to. But I have to say, you know what? I have this deadline. I have a job. I've been hired by people to write a script and I'm going to deliver it. And so I'm doing that. And the other thing that I'm working on is I, I've been sort of halfway working on two books over the last several years. And I'm finally like, I have to finish one of these. I'm going to finish my novel. And so I, as soon as that screenplay is delivered, I'm going to go right back really hard on my my novel and finish it. Because it's been since Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things came out. And then I had a book a couple years after that called Brave Enough. And it's just like, it's been a lot of other things. It's been, been a lot of public speaking. I had this whole accidental career as a public speaker and doing all kinds of different creative projects. But if anything, like this pandemic has put me back on the focus of like, the first thing I am is a writer, and I'm going to do that. I'm doing that again. Do you have a, a routine around it right now? How are you getting through not feeling particularly motivated outside of your deadline? My driving principle, the only thing that really ever has worked for me is to say, just start, just start working, <laughs> just begin. And you know, it's hard for me to write. I'll just say this. It's always been hard for me to write. And I've even thought sometimes over these last couple of years, like, well, why am I doing this? You know, why, why do I write if it's so hard to write? What do you mean when you say hard? What's hard about it? How does that manifest itself? It's, it feels like deep, deep, deep labor. And I have to battle so many voices within my head that say like, well, that's stupid, or like, nobody's going to be interested in this, or you don't really have anything more to say. And everyone's going to read this and think like, well, it's not as good as wild or, you know, or the people who hated wild and hate that I, you know, had such success with it will be like, glad that I write like a shitty book (laughs) or so you know what I mean? Like I have all the negative voices in my head. And so like, part of my process is to say, hello, all of you mean people inside of my head, take a seat, I'm going to be over here. And I'm going to just begin, I'm just going to start. And so once I can break through that sense of fear, really, I step into it. And I'm never, I'm never happier. Like it's the, the feeling I have when I'm writing is unlike anything else in my life. How has that changed for you? Like, how has success changed that for you? Is that dynamic harder now? Is it easier now? Is it the same? Well, it's two things. It's both. It's two things. It's like, on one hand, honestly, I'm 51. And I've gotten to the point where I just know myself better. Like I know that that resistance I feel it is part of my process. Uh, many writers processes are like, oh, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. I've got to mop the floor instead or whatever. And And then we begin and it works, you know, so I know that about myself now. And as far as the fame piece or the success piece, I would say that it does make it a little harder in that, you know, more people are paying attention 
than before. And the people pleaser in me, <laughs> the one who is like, I want everyone to love me. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, I'm afraid that I'll disappoint people who love my books. Like, I'm afraid they'll be like, about my next book, like, oh, you know, I loved her other books, but not this one. And what's great about being 51 is I can tell that story to myself and wrap my arms around it and say, well, you know, you just have to do it anyway. You can't please everyone. You know, I really have reached the age where I've fully embraced that. That doesn't mean that that part of me has disappeared. It's just that now I know how to manage it, you know, by by accepting it, really. But I, I think the deeper question is, like, has my writing changed since Wild was published, you know, in terms of like the my process? And I would say no. And I love that. Like, every time I sit down to write, it's the beginning. It's something new. And I have to do that thing I did before, except I have to do it as the person I am now. And so, you know, it was no easier for me to write wild than it was to write torch. No easier for me to write tiny, beautiful things than it was to write wild. And this next book, you know, is going to be every bit as challenging as every book that came before. Um, and, and, and it's always you alone wrestling with the words. How does the screenplay fit with that? Well, you know, I do tend to be, nobody would ever call my, my writing experimental. I, I'm a, I write realism. I, I mean, I love to write work that's in that mode. And, but I, I'm an experimentalist when it comes to form. And so I'm intrigued always by working in new forms, like the advice column. Like, you know, I, I never dreamed I would write an advice column and make it these essentially epistolary essays about life. And, and so the last several years I've written, um, I wrote a script, which was a adaptation of my, my book, Tiny Beautiful Things, wrote that for TV. It's not been made, but you know, it was still a really interesting experience to learn like how to work in that form. And then now this screenplay I'm writing, it's been fascinating. Like, how do I take what I know as a memoirist and fiction writer and apply it to this other form? Uh, so many of the essential things are unchanged, right? Yeah. If you know how to tell a story, you know how to tell a story. But it is a different form. And so that's been cool. Like, it's a challenge. And, and it's interesting to me. Do the stakes feel just as high? Well, you know, I'm not sure that I would put it that it's the stakes. It's so much as it is the outcome seems far more uncertain than it would be with a book, right? Because I feel like, okay, I know how to write a book. I know how to kind of shepherd that through to its end point. And with a screenplay, it's just so much more fraught and uncertain. The way that movies get made, it's not really only about like whether the script is good or not right? I mean, it's got to go through such a gauntlet of things that aren't about writing that are about, you know, Hollywood. So yeah, that's like, I could write the world's greatest screenplay, and then it just nothing could happen to it. Right. So when you're writing a book that you've been paid for, you know, that book is going to come out if you finish it, and that many people will read it. And with the screenplay, it's like, I'm just going to send it down the coast and like, maybe it happens and maybe it doesn't. It's a weird like lottery system kind of. Completely. I mean, utterly it's a lottery system. And I remember this when, so Nick Hornby adapted wild for the screen. And I remember he and I, when he was writing the script, we met and communicated. And then, you know, we were, we became friends and were in touch through the whole, the whole process of making the movie. And really every time he spoke to me, he would say, now Cheryl, you know, just so you know, like there's only like a tiny, tiny, tiny chance that this will actually ever get made. And I would say like, but no, there's like this going for it and that going for it. And the other thing, and he'd say, I know, I know. And then he would tell me about all these other projects he's worked on that like, it seems like it should have been made and then it wasn't for whatever reason. And and really it wasn't even until the day we began shooting that he was like, okay, I'll grant you now it's probably going to get made. But he, even then he wasn't willing to say like all the way. And so I think it's like, that is how screenwriting is. I remember also the person who probably first enlightened me to the whole, you know, script writing that that whole Hollywood script writing world is Jill Soloway, who is the creator and writer of Transparent. And like, I mean, she's just amazing. I love that show. And I love her work. And but before Transparent, I went out to lunch with her and 
I asked her about her work and she explained to me how she'd written like all of these scripts, like for years, really, but like none or very few of them had actually been made into TV shows. Like she'd get hired to write the pilot, she'd write the pilot and then nothing would happen. And I was just dumbfounded, but like this whole world of like writers who are down there writing these, you know, many of them probably beautiful scripts that because of the whole machinery of the mysterious world of Hollywood, they just never see the light of day. Wait, so why have you become one? Like, what's your incentive for becoming a screenwriter and entering the lottery? It was kind of accidental. Everything I've done, Max, it's just like, I mean, I'm a writer. I'm a writer first and foremost. And so I guess what happened is that people come to me and say, do you want to do this thing? That's what happened (laughs) with with sugar. And I was like, okay. And a similar thing happened with the screenwriting. This screenplay I'm writing right now, a couple of my friends who are the director and, and actor who are involved with the project said, we want you to be the one who writes the script. And we started talking and exploring the idea and it, it sounded interesting to me. And my experimental nature <laughs> was like, let's try this. Let's give it a whirl. Usually when I say yes to things, it's about something in my gut that says that that's a good idea. It's not like someone like backed a Brings truck up to your house and that's why you're writing a screenplay. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, no, uh-uh. It's actually like, it's not as high pain as other endeavors for me are. Um, let's just put it that way. So I would do it only because it sounds interesting to me. And then now it's like, what's cool about it is it's given me a sense of like, I have a job. When we all sort of had to socially isolate a bunch of my speaking gigs dried up, like everyone who does any kind of thing in front of an audience, like all of those things went away and all that, you know, those payments that I was going to get for those things went away. And I was like, oh, the one job that I still have is the job that I have to be alone in a room to do. Right. My my main, my main gig is still here. Yeah. My main gig is still here. It's being a writer. And so um, it's like, oh, back in the room, Cheryl, <laughs> go back into the room and um, back to your origins and 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 write, 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 write. That's what I'm doing. There was one thing you were just talking about that um, made me think about something else, which I wasn't planning to ask you about, but now I'm going to, which is ambition. And I wonder whether your like um, relationship to ambition has changed. Like w- once you achieve the kind of like success that you have, what's your relationship to ambition? It's just in my bones. I have always been an ambitious person. And not necessarily in the ways that we associate with, I think that we have this limited idea of what ambition is. You know, all through my 20s, you you wouldn't necessarily have looked at me and been like, well, she's ambitious. I mean, I was working as a waitress and I was goofing around and doing all kinds of things, but I was always writing and I was always really sure and clear and serious about my writing. And so my ambition was like this secret thing within me that I dedicated myself to even though I was like, you know, barely able to pay my rent. And like, I wasn't like ambitious, like, oh, and then she went to, you know, medical school, and then she did this and that. And there's (laughs) nothing wrong with being ambitious in that way. I'm not saying that. But, you know, I, I think that ambition as an artist can sometimes look like you're kind of like, you know, that you don't have quote unquote, a real job. Like that's something I used to hear a lot as a young woman, when are you going to get a real job? And I'm like, my real job has always been my writing. And I've always been really ambitious about it. And I guess to me, ambitious is my version of ambition is exactly what we're talking about is I tend to be somebody who says yes, when I'm asked to do something that excites me, whether that be start a new podcast, or write a screenplay, or write an advice column, or, you know, the shorter work I've done recently, like I wrote a short story that's going to be published soon. And I wrote a, um, this essay for an anthology or, you know, like things that intrigue me or feel like they're going to be challenging or new, or in some way that they're going to teach me something like this screenplay, like no matter what happens to it, it will be something that fed me creatively, that taught me something I probably will use down the road, you know, like Jill Soloway, all those scripts that she wrote, that became transparent. Like those are the things that built the woman who wrote that show. 
So your your relationship to ambition is all about creativity. Like there's not some professional benchmark that you were once trying to hit and did hit or are now trying to hit. It's just kind of project by project. Like there's no straight line. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say, I mean, I certainly, I wanted to connect with an audience. I wanted people to want to read my work. That's, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't want to write things that nobody would read. Um, so I guess I just wanted to write something that was meaningful to others you know, and I still want to do that. Like, I always want people to be like, oh, wow, like that reached me or spoke to me. That's, that's my ambition. Well, I mean, I'm, maybe that's what I'm asking, though, right? Is like, if the ambition was to write something that meant something to a large number of people, like you've done that. And so I think what I'm wondering about is like, once you've done that, does that ambition change? Or do you keep just going for the same thing? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like when I was writing Wild, never once did I think, okay, like I want this to be a New York Times bestseller, you know, like I I didn't, I, I was in my early 40s when I was writing Wild. And by then I'd been a writer long enough that, you know, I kind of like knew the way things go is that that, that wasn't like a, a kind of like a sort of dream. It, like if I had, if I had made a vision board, that wouldn't have necessarily like New York Times bestseller wouldn't have been on my vision board. And that doesn't mean I didn't want that to happen, but it was like, it wasn't really where I was aiming. It was a more kind of vaguer sense of like, I want to write a book that really kind of captures everything that hike was about or everything that my mother loss was about, or, you know, I, I really wanted, yeah, the achievement was creative. And then yes, what I hoped is that a lot of people would read it and love it, but it wasn't so concrete that I was actually visualizing certainly not what happened to the book. And so, yes, like then that did happen. And I was like completely overwhelmed by it and grateful for it. And in some ways, like when I just described to you my writing process, like that's unchanged when I'm alone with myself and I have to face the blank computer screen. I feel all the ways I used to feel. But absolutely, like in the broader world, my sense of my work in the world has absolutely changed entirely because of the experience I've had with Wild. Because now, like I said earlier, it's like, it's just, I'm aware that people are paying attention and I was not before. I was not aware of that at all before. I mean, I had a little modest literary audience. It wasn't that I was an unknown writer before Wild, but I was known in the way that literary writers in America are known, which is, you know, in our own little orbit, basically. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, my sense, um, it's not that my sense of ambition has changed since the experience with Wild, because I do kind of feel like, okay, that was like a pretty unique experience. And I wouldn't expect any more of my books to do all the different things that Wild did around the world. Um, so, you know, it's not that I think like that my next book has to be that, but I certainly am more mindful, you know, that people will be paying attention when it's published and compare it against their previous ideas of who I was to them as a writer. And that can be both, I mean, I experience that as a gift <laughs> that people are paying attention. And yeah, like it, it makes me afraid sometimes, you know, I want to please people. I want people to love my work and you know, I can't. I, I mean, I think every writer has to always uh, surrender before that kind of dream of making everyone happy. There's no way to make everyone happy with uh, the work we do. But what you're always aiming for is making some people feel seen and heard and known through your work. That was a good answer. Thank you. <laughs> that was that was a good definitive answer. All right, I'm going to ask you about this podcast now because I don't have any follow-ups because you just you answered that question pretty fully. <laughs> what have you learned doing this? You've been talking to like um pretty incredible list of writers. What have you learned? What what have you gotten out of having these conversations? Well, it's been doing sugar calling has been a, an interesting kind of like dream fulfillment. <laughs> I mean, the fact that I've been able to call up some of these writers who have been really in my life and in my consciousness for so long and who were really formative to me. I interviewed Judy Bloom, for example, and it really brought me to tears because I'm right there of the age that Judy Bloom was just really, really a big deal to me when I was a 
well, all through my teen years. And I experience her as like not even like a human, you know, she's somebody who taught me about so much. And so then when I was like calling her up, I'm like, okay, Cheryl, don't cry. You know, you're like, you're going to actually get to talk to Judy Bloom. And I went back in my mind, I remembered the me that was this, you know, 12 or 13 or 14 year old girl who was wandering the library and checking out one Judy Bloom book after the other and dreaming of being a writer someday and learning so much from this woman. And then, you know, I just felt really like a, a sense of like profound gratitude that I got to speak to somebody who had been such a giant to me. And, and I just got, I just got to say it was, it was really cool to hear that in your voice when you're talking to Judy Bloom and you totally could like those first <laughs> four or five minutes. It was like, um, right. I don't know. You were, you were like so nervous and excited. It's like yeah. a tiny bit awkward. It was great. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Cause I'm like, honestly, like, I mean, how, how did that happen? How does that get to be that I get to talk to this person? Um, Aside from that, that personal kind of like, holy smokes, across the board, what I would say about this group of writers I've t- I'm talking to, across the board, what I am always reminded over and over again in each conversation is how much we can endure, that there's something that happens that's difficult or painful or scary, and then we just keep going and something else happens. And I think talking to older people reminds us of the healing power of time. Like how we always think that whatever is now is like the thing <laughs> that, that will be always. And, we, and even though when we know otherwise, like we kind of feel it like, this is so hard, I can't take it anymore. And what I think age always teaches us is that there's something else ahead and that we just have to, we have to like endure and then onward we go and, and something there are easier days ahead or there are happier days or whatever it is, there will always be change. Everything is always changing. And so I think that talking to the elders has given me like a greater ability to remain calm on the days that feel not so calm to me. Part of it for me is I really think that this thing is too big for our brains to process. You know, that's really how it feels to me. That feels like the truest thing about it is is just, it's just too big. It's hard to wrap your head around anything big enough to affect everyone. You know, it's like everyone that you and I know right now is going through this. Everybody. Yeah. You know, and it, and it's hard. And, and, and part of what's been so powerful about the show is just like, you know, I wasn't really thinking about what Judy Bloom's quarantine was like, you know? And, but she's trying yeah. to figure it out and just hearing from, from those people and realizing that, you know, it's just another sort of layer to like everyone is going through some version of the same thing. Yeah. And some of the, you know, some of it too, I think really the power of those conversations is like, just like, I really keep it very simple. Like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Are you afraid? You know, like really keeping it in the here and now and just like, like you just said, it's like, well, what is Judy Bloom doing during the pandemic? What is yeah. Pico Iyer going? Like, what's going on with George Saunders or Alice Walker or whatever, you know, and, and what what are those people doing? And and then a lot of them, too, I feel like, at least from my past, but some of the listeners, like these writers that I'm presenting are people who at different points in their early their lives earlier were reassuring or illuminating or consoling or or enlightening in some way, like it's reassuring to hear that right now, to have that conversation from them about how they're coping. What's it like to be the one asking the questions? It's just pure delight. It's really fun. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I, and I, it's so much easier than answering them, right? <laughs> yeah. You know what it is too? It's like, I really, from the beginning, I was like, listen, this is not a book show. I'm not, you know, interviewing somebody about their latest book. I'm really just saying, how are you? And what are you thinking? And what do you think about hard times? And what do you think about what's ahead? You know, and to make it really like a conversation. Um, and, and that's been striking to me as a host. Like every episode has been so different from the one before it. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a great diversity on the show because there's so much, the content is really driven by the people I'm talking to, like Margaret Atwood, 
couldn't be more different than George Saunders. And yet they both have something really important to say about now. I really loved Margaret Atwood not taking your advice to not work on a roof. <laughs> now, like that, I could just say, as an advice giver, I know that's good advice, Max. That's like, good. It's she's probably 80. not wise she's for Margaret 80. Atwood to be patching holes on a roof. But she was no. basically like, yeah, you know what? Fuck off. <laughs> I know. She's, she was quite the firecracker, wasn't she? She was awesome. Yeah. It's been really interesting to hear you in that role and hear you interviewing. I think you're very, very good at it. Oh, thank um, you. And But part of it is that I have sort of been wondering how how you're doing and how you think about hard times. And there's not, there's like not that much of it in the show. And that one of the only things that, that did jump out at me about maybe the experience you're having is um, it does seem like you're like thinking about your mom a lot. She, I think, she, I think you've talked about her in every episode. Mm-hmm. Um, does that sound right to you? Have you been thinking Probably. about her? Yeah. I mean, I think that that, first of all, that's always true. Losing my mom when she was, she was 45 when she died and I was 22. And that was such a huge loss in my life that it, it informs me all the time. Right. But I think especially when it's come up, I think, especially in sugar calling rather often, because so many of these people I'm calling are people who are making me sort of harken back to my younger years. So when I'm imagining that young girl walking around looking for Judy Bloom books. It's, you know, as, as my mother's daughter, I don't think I mentioned her on the Judy Bloom episode, but there, there's still like a, you know, that the ghost of her is everywhere. And certainly like when I talked to Amy Tan, I sort of unexpectedly <laughs> began crying because I, the Joy Luck Club was like one of the last books that my mom and I both read and loved before my mom died. And so suddenly I was just like cast back to that time you know, of like when I read the book. But but yeah, I mean, I think that it's been interesting to me on the show when I do ask people about the hard times they've lived through or or where they find wisdom or, you know, any of those things. People's parents come up a lot, not just mine, like the guests too. You know, they they almost always end up talking in some way about their childhoods, their early losses, sometimes the losses specifically in connection to their parents. I also wondered whether there was something about the kind of generational aspect too, like everyone you're talking to is somewhere in the same age range as your mother. Yeah, no, that's true. I I think about that sometimes. I haven't thought about it so much on the show, but I have to say every once in a while I'll meet somebody who is like the age that my mom would be if she were alive. And I kind of like take note. I study their faces and I try to imagine my life if my mom had not died so young. And, you know, it's impossible for me to think of what my life would be if my mom didn't die young. And so much of what my life is, is frankly risen from that moment. And, you know, I think that that might be true for some people now. So, you know, maybe that's why my mom's death has come up uh, in those conversations rather often is because, you know, I I have this sense that like something really big, like you say, when you, when you said you couldn't wrap your, your mind around uh, what's happening, like the very first thing that came into my mind when you said that is my mother's death. And it took me years, years to like really understand that my mom was dead. And I know that's not uncommon. That's a really common thing with grief where you just, it's like there's you're the deepest part of you can't really actually know what's happened. And yeah, I think that maybe some of that is being stirred up right now. Like, you know, when we have to face difficulty, the other difficulties come up and, and not always in a bad way, like actually very often can be, what makes us stronger, what makes us feel like we can carry on. Are you finding a way to feel like uh, optimistic right now? Uh, It depends what you mean uh, by optimistic, because on one hand, I I do think, you know, it's, it's really important to remember that nothing bad has happened to me or you at this point, right? I'm going to assume you, have you lost a loved one 
to this virus yet? No. Yeah, me either. And um, I say, yeah, because we don't know what's ahead, right? And, you know, so far we've managed to stay safe and, and sort of in this kind of cocoon within the sad and difficult things that are happening in the world outside of us. And so, you know, I think, well, yeah, I better be optimistic because at least so far I'm, I've been quite fortunate, right? And yet on this bigger scale, I think, okay, I'm so afraid for those who have lost someone, I'm not afraid, I'm sad for them. And I'm afraid for the the really vulnerable people who will um, suffer extraordinarily because of the hardships that this um, pandemic has brought on. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's too early to know if this is going to be something. I know a lot of people have talked about like the pandemic, maybe this will wake us up and we'll live, you know, more sustainably and we'll be kinder to each other. And, you know, and I hope that that's the case. I think it's too early to tell uh, what's ahead. I love scientists. I love that we look to the scientists as the ones who know. And what scientists will very often say when we say, tell us, <laughs> tell us what you know, tell us what's true. They say, we don't know. Scientists are always, always, always investigating rather than speaking in definitives. They're saying, we're still finding out. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm optimistic. I'm I'm hopeful and I believe in the power of love and kindness. And I think that the world can be a devastatingly hard place sometimes. And so I think all of those things at once. Um, and yeah. I don't know. I don't know yet. But it's kind of like the advice I would give uh, if, if I were doing an advice podcast would be about trying to stay in the present and trying to do your best every day and not waste your energy on what we don't know that's ahead. That's why I asked you, like, have you been harmed by this virus, really? And I don't mean to ask that in any way, like, oh, if, as long as you're okay, everything's fine. But I think it's our job, those of us who have not yet really, really been harmed by this. We haven't lost somebody who's essential to us. We have, or we're still able to feed ourselves and shelter ourselves and provide for ourselves. Um, you know, it's really important that we stay strong and we don't get all bound up and like all, you know, it's going to be terrible. It's what's going to happen. And that's what's going to happen when this happens. And then that's going to happen. And like <laughs> all of that stuff, it does nothing but deplete us. And it's kind of selfish too. Like it makes us not able to function as well as we could function if we just decided to be brave and strong and offer what we could right now. I got one more advice question for you, then I'm gonna let you go. But I assume that there are some number of young writers who are listening to this who were already feeling a fair amount of anxiety about their chosen profession. And I do think that one of the things that will come out of this pandemic changed is publishing. Mm -hmm. Like book publishers uh, are in real trouble right now. Magazines are in real trouble right now. Like I, I think the industry in which you operate, I do think it will be, uh, it will be a fundamentally different thing. Maybe that's not true, but it, it sure feels that way to me. And I, and I guess I, I wonder what you would say to a writer just starting out now or, or maybe someone who's, you know, a couple years in. What would you tell them about how to navigate this? Well, my approach to writing has always been one driven by simply answering that call. I've, I feel called to be a writer and most writers I know feel that to some degree as well. And industries have changed. There's always been doom and gloom reports about the book business. What you say is true. This has been a disaster for pretty much every industry, but certainly books and writers have been hit really hard. I don't mean to diminish that in any way. But what I will say is we will always need story. We will always need story. And the ways that story has been delivered to people over the history of, of the world has changed, but it has always been true that we look to story for entertainment, consolation, illumination, insight, comfort, laughter, you know, all of those things. Those are, that's been true forever, right? And it always will be true. 
And it's, I know that it feels really shaky right now, but maybe it's a little bit comforting and maybe I should, you know, um, reassure you that all those old writers I'm talking to on Sugar Calling would, would say the same is, you know, nobody ever came out of college with somebody saying to them like, Hey, will you write me a collection of poetry? Will you write me, <laughs> you know, will you write me a novel or a collection of essays? Like nobody ever was begging for that stuff. You know, it's always been an uphill walk. And I think that the people who have succeeded at that, and by succeeded, I don't mean, you know, made a lot of money or sold a lot of books. I mean, succeeded in answering that call and writing those words that they felt in their hearts, you know, those words that they felt that they had to write. The people who have succeeded are the ones who just kept walking up that hill. They just kept going, no matter how steep it got. And that's it. That's what I do. That's what I do. And I know that, uh, you know, whenever I say anything anymore about writing, people will say like, well, it's easy for her to say. But um, it's not, actually. It's always hard for me still. And and I also, you know, know what that feels like. I know what that feels like to be like, oh, my God, will anyone ever want to read these words? And the answer is we don't know. But you have to write them in order to find out. Hey, Cheryl, thank you for doing this. It's always fun to talk to you, Max, anytime. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks so much to Cheryl Strade for coming on the show. Her podcast is called Sugar Calling. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.